Hi, everybody. I had a little bit of a meltdown this last week on my Facebook page, and I want to thank everyone who reached out to me and offered me so much love and support. Boy, it really buoyed me up, and it meant a lot to me. I think it is not insignificant that I've just produced 100 episodes, and I'm sort of feeling that in some significant way, I'm kind of uh, spinning my wheels, treading water. But... Um, your support and encouragement meant a lot to me. Thank you also for listening, because if you're hearing this, it means you're listening to me, and that means also an enormous amount to me. I would encourage you also to perhaps consider becoming Patreon sponsors. There are now two options. You can either pay on a monthly basis or a yearly basis. For $2 a month or up, you can gain access to all of my bonus episodes, or for $25 a year, on up, you can also gain access to those episodes. I'm not doing one this week, but it's a fascinating and rewarding episode that I have to offer you today. So thank you very, very, very much. I love you all, and here's the show. Dear listeners, and welcome to Counter Melody. It is I, your host, Daniel Gundlach. And as always, I'm committed to bringing you the voices of beloved singers, often focusing on unexpected facets of their artistry. You will also be hearing less celebrated but equally treasurable artists who deserve our attention and respect. I'm honored to have you join me on this ongoing mutual journey of discovery. And now, without any further ado, let's get down to today's business. Great singers and great singing. Welcome to today's episode. Today I have one of the great German baritones for your delectation. His name is Heinrich Rehkemper, and he is what one would call a cavalier baritone, a baritone that lies right between lyric and dramatic. Someone who can sing Mozart with ease and yet also take on Verdi parts and even some Wagner, as we shall see. But what I most treasure Heinrich Reikemper for is his singing of Lieder. So let's start with him in a 1928 recording of Schubert's Sei mir gegrüßt. Listen to how, like Claudia Muzio last week, he makes use of a full range of dynamic possibilities, from pianissimo to full-throated forte. The pianist is Manfred Gurlit. I shall have something to say about him later. Sei mir 
Heimisch Reikemper was born in 1894 in the Westphalia or Westfalen region of Germany. He initially trained as a tool and die maker, but as his interest in music and singing developed, he studied at the conservatories in Hagen, Düsseldorf, and Munich. He made his debut in 1919 as a member of the ensemble at the theater in Coburg. Originally, he sang bass roles, and you will definitely hear how he had a very solid, low voice. But eventually, he mutated, shall we say, into the baritone Fach and sang roles such as Figaro, Guglielmo, Papageno. He also sang Wagner roles, Wolfram in Tannhäuser, Amfortas in Parsifal, and Beckmesser in Meistersinger. He also sang in numerous premieres of operas by Hans Pfitzner, including Das Herz, Die Rose vom Liebesgarten, and Der Arme Heinrich. He was a celebrated Verdi singer. He also sang roles in what are today less well-known operas, including works by Lortzing, Marschner, Hermann Goetz, Humperdinck, and Eugen Dalbert. He also sang a good deal of contemporary work, including operas by Hermann Reuter, Werner Eck, Marc Lothar. He also sang many Italian roles, all of these would have been in German translation, and also sang Eugene Onegin and Rangoni in Boris Godunov. He also sang in the world premiere of an operetta by Eduard Koenigke called Die Lockende Flamme, from which there are a few famous excerpts, none unfortunately recorded by him. All of this is to say that he had a very wide-ranging repertoire, which we will be sampling today alongside his matchless singing of Lieder. Let's start with Figaro, shall we? Here he is in a 1923 recording singing Ich bin das Factotum, or Largo al Factotum. I realize I've been playing an awful lot of singers of varying stripes singing Figaro these days. 
I believe we heard Igor Gorin singing Figaro a few months ago. Just a few weeks ago, we had John Raitt, and now we have Heinrich Rehkemper singing it in German. Let me point out that this man has a viable trill, and he also covers an enormous vocal range from bass to lyric baritone. After Coburg, Heinrich Rehkemper was engaged at the Staatsoper in Stuttgart. 
After three seasons there, he broke his contract, and as punishment, he was not allowed to sing opera anywhere in Germany for two seasons. It was during this period that he developed his aptitude as a leader singer. And at the end of this episode in particular, we will hear him singing more leader, Wolf, Schumann, and particularly Schubert. But for now, let's stick with some of his Cavalier baritone roles. He was celebrated for his Mozart singing, and in the three short examples that I'm going to play for you, you will see exactly why that was the case. First is Will der Herr Graf or Se vuol ballare from Figaro's Hochzeit or Le Nozze di Figaro. This is a 1929 recording made with the orchestra of the Berlin Staatsoper. Soll ich ihm springen und ich ihm geben, auch großes Leben bin ich sein Mann. Soll ich ihm springen und ich ihm geben, auch großes Leben bin ich sein Mann, ja, bin ich sein Mann, ja, bin ich sein Mann. Kemper's most celebrated Mozart roles was as Papageno in Die Zauberflöte. And here we have a portion of the so-called suicide aria. In it, we hear not only Ray Kemper's great sense of humor and fun, but also his ability to evoke pathos. Oh, so love is this my time. Rufe it nur, ja oder nein. Rufe it nur, ja oder nein. Ein, 
get to hear Ray Kemper do a little bit of his sexy thing. This is the second verse of De Vieni alla Finestra, or as it's called in German, Horch auf der Klang der Zita. I think De Vieni alla Finestra sounds a little bit more seductive and beguiling, don't you? This recording is from 1923. It's one of his earliest. <laughs> sample some of Ray Kemper's Wagner. I mentioned that he began his career as a bass. In fact, when he was engaged in Coburg, he sang the role of Fafner in The Ring des Nibelungen. But once he became a baritone, he moved into some of the lighter Wagner roles, as I had mentioned. There's nothing lightweight about his Amphortas, however. We're going to hear a short portion of Amphortas's first act monologue it begins with the words des eignes sündigen blutes gewell. This recording was also made in 1923. <laughs> Es einen gleich geschlagen von derselben Spielerstreich, der dort im Erlöser die Wunde stach, aus der mit Blutgen In me, 
baritone roles of Giuseppe Verdi figured prominently in Ray Kemper's repertoire. He sang Don Carlo in La Forza del Destino, or Die Macht des Schicksals. He sang Macbeth. He sang Rigoletto. These are the very heaviest of the Verdi parts. Another role for which he was quite celebrated was the Count di Luna in Trovatore, or Der Troubadour. Here he is in a 1923 recording of Di Luna's aria, called in German Ihres Auges Himmlisch Strahlen. Yeah. 
Now you may have noticed a few things about Ray Kempo's voice already, that it is very solid, a trifle nasal in production, but with a very easy top and a very strong bottom, and a firm dedication to legato singing. These are, in my opinion, extremely important things for a singer's technical arsenal. Ray Kemper is merely one of a great number of extraordinary German baritones from around that period, and I have decided to just give you a little taste of four different baritones that were all active in this period. I'm going to play each one of them singing the second part of the Cavatina of Il Balen that we just heard. We will go in chronological order from their date of birth. So the first one up, born in 1888, is Heinrich Schlossnuss. He is considered to be the king of German baritones of that era. He was considered, and is considered, the supreme German exponent of Verdi singing. He was a star at the Staatsoper in Berlin in particular, and here he is, in the 1928 recording of the Di Luna aria. Next up, born 1897 in Aachen, is the baritone Willi Domgraf Fassbinder. You may recognize his name. He was another supreme cavalier baritone whose career was also based in Berlin, and he was considered the most Italianate of the Cavalier Baritone. He's known primarily for the Fritz Busch recordings of Mozart operas from Glyndebourne in the 1930s, and he was, of course, also the father of the great German mezzo-soprano Brigitte Fassbinder, and also her teacher. 
he also sang Rigoletto with great success. And again, many of the other Italian parts as well as some of the lighter Wagner roles. Here he is in a 1931 recording with the Berliner Funk Orchestra led by Fritz Zweig. Next up, born in 1900, is the baritone Karl Schmidt-Walter. He is a particular favorite of mine. I think, like Ray Kemper, he was blessed with an incredible ability to sing Lieder expressively and convincingly. Not insignificantly, he was also a famous Beckmesser in Meistersinger. Here he is in a 1942 recording with the orchestra of the Staatsoper Berlin, led by Arthur Rother. Baby of the Bunch, born in 1901, Gerhard Hüsch, along with Schlussnuss, he is acknowledged as one of the great leader singers. Dombra Fassbender, less so, 
Schmidt-Walter, perhaps less celebrated today, but equally important in that repertoire. Hirsch has a perhaps undeserved reputation of being what the Germans call a bit spießig or bourgeois, and that's borne out a bit in his Die Luna, but you must remember that he was an early exponent particularly of the songs of the Finnish composer Kilpinen, and if... I were doing a bonus episode, I would feature him in that repertoire, and your mind would be blown. He's such an imaginative singer when it comes to more unusual repertoire. So bear that in mind as we hear his somewhat stodgy Di Luna. wanted to just let you hear each of these voices in relatively close succession so that you can hear that they have in their basic vocal production many points in common, and yet there's also great individuality of timbre and of artistic approach to this aria. In one case, one might hear more cantilena. In another, one might hear a more refulgent outpouring of sound. In another, a more vivid expression of character. But these are all important and significant singers. Now, I'm just going to take a moment here to say that, of course, we must consider the era in which these singers were active and the implications that their artistic activity during those years might entail. I'm talking, of course, of involvement with the Nazi party. We know for certain that Schlussnuss and Domgraf Fassbender were party members. We know that Karl Schmidt-Walter sang at the front and for members of the Wehrmacht. We know that Gerhard Hüsch had some connections with some higher-ups in the Nazi party. I don't know what Heinrich Rehkemper's connection with any of this was, but of course we must remember that from 1926 until 1944, he was a member of the Bayerische Staatsoper in Munich. And of course Munich was a hotbed 
of Nazi activity. I can't say with any certainty one way or the other what his affiliations and proclivities were, politically speaking. These things must be acknowledged. I'm not going to spend any more time dwelling on it right now. Instead, I'm going to go on, not insignificantly, with a recording from the year 1928 of Es ist genug from Elias, that is, It is Enough from Elijah, by Felix Mendelssohn, who, of course, during the Nazi regime, would never have been performed. This is a few years earlier. Manfred Gurlitt is leading the orchestra of the Staatsoper Berlin. Ich I just wanted to say about Manfred Gurlitt. He worked in the house at the Staatsoper. He was also a composer. He wrote a number of operas, including a version of Die Soldaten, 
and a version of Wozzeck, both of which have been recorded and both of which are really fascinating. He also did an operatic setting of Emile Zola's novel, Nana, and after some rather shady back-and-forth dealings with the Nazis during his years in Berlin, he finally joined the party in 1933, only to be ejected in 1937 because of his Jewish heritage, which was traced back several generations. He finally managed to emigrate to Japan in 1939, where he lived out the rest of his days. All this is to say that artistic careers during that era were comprised of concessions, compromise, morally questionable decisions, and sometimes doing the right thing. I really have decided that I am not in a position to judge these people. Unless, of course, you were an out-and-out Nazi, and we know who I'm talking about, and no, I'm not going to mention them by name. Those people deserve our derision. But for some of these others, I think we have to exercise caution in judging too harshly. But now it's time to move along to yet another composer who found disfavor with the Nazis. I'm talking about Gustav Mahler in this case. It took a long time for Mahler's music to catch on anywhere in the world, but particularly in Germany. However, in 1928, Heinrich Rehkemper and the conductor Jascha Horenstein made the very first recording of Mahler's Kindertotenlieder. This was once again with the orchestra of the Staatsoper Berlin, which was comprised in significant number with members of the Berliner Philharmoniker. Of course, these are deeply tragic songs, dealing as they do with the death of children. When Mahler wrote these songs, of course, he had not yet experienced such loss. Sadly, it came within a few years after completing the Kindertotenlieder, that he too experienced the death of a child. In many ways, this is an ideal recording. The conducting by Horenstein is fantastic. Ray Kemper has a deep connection to the words, and the orchestra, while not flawless, plays with taste and a great understanding of how these songs are supposed to go. I had to decide if I was going to play one entire song or shorter excerpts from two different songs. I decided to play short portions of the second and third songs. First, let's hear a bit of Nun seh ich wohl, warum so dunkle Flammen.
And now here's a portion of Wenn dein Mütterlein tritt zur Tür herein. When your dear mother comes in through the door with her flickering candle, I always think you are coming along too, stealing in behind her as you used to do. Oh, that joyful light of your father's flesh and blood too soon extinguished. The rest of the episode today is going to focus on Ray Kemper's leader singing. I had mentioned how when he was frozen out from performing opera in Germany that he began to develop his career as a concert singer and recitalist. Often in this time, when singers would record art songs, they would be accompanied not by a pianist, but by a salon orchestra. It's in this way, for instance, that Lotte Lehmann's first recording of Schumann's cycle Frauenliebe und Leben is accompanied by a very saccharine and rather scrappy-sounding orchestra. What's interesting about Reikemper's leader recordings is that he is almost always, as far as I can tell, unless they're orchestrated songs, accompanied by a pianist. Either Manfred Gurlitt whom I described to you earlier, the significant pianist Michael Raucheisen, 
about whom there's also lots to be said regarding his <clears throat> affiliations, but I'll leave that for a later date. Or also the pianist Valdemar Lyachovsky, whom we hear on several of these recordings. In fact, it's Valdemar Lyachovsky whom we will hear on this 1925 recording of a lesser-known Schubert song called Lied des Orpheus, als er in die Hülle ging, the song of Orpheus as he enters hell. This is one of Schubert's larger-scale songs. It's composed to a text by Johann Georg Jacobi, who also wrote the text to Mozart's Ankloe and to Schubert's Litanei. This is a song that Orpheus sings as he approaches the gates of hell. It's structured in a grand quasi-operatic style, with an opening recitative that goes into a beautiful cantilena as Orpheus sings to the gods of the underworld. And then, in the final section of the piece, it becomes almost like a cabaletta, a final section where Orpheus realizes that he has conquered their affections and he will be allowed to pass. This recording is from 1925. <laughs> Oh, so feel the 
Wollust noch einmal unter Augenblick, in dem ihr euch erbarmet, lindre diese lange The next Schubert song I'm going to play for you is called Am Bach im Frühling, at the brook in springtime. The poet addresses the brook and says, you have broken forth from the icy crust that has held you, and everything is coming back to life, and yet the blossoming of the earth, the return of your flowing waters, does nothing to help my heart. I'm going to play the portion of the song which is in the middle, where there's a restative describing the same winds driving me forever. No hope enters my mind, even if I see a little flower. It is blue, like the flowers that bloom in my memories. And then the theme returns again. Du brachst sie nun die kalte Rinde. This recording is with Manfred Gorlitt at the piano and is from 1928. <laughs> Der Erinnerung blühen, blau wie sie der Erinnerung blühen. Du 
I haven't yet talked about how I came to know Heinrich Reikemper. For much of my life, into my 30s, I remained completely ignorant to this person. But it was through the intervention and the good offices of my dear friend Gavin that I first encountered this voice. I was staying with him and his then-partner in Hampstead, and one beautiful fall morning, they said to me, You love Schubert singing? You ever heard Heinrich Reikemper? And I was like, Who? And they played him for me, and I realized just what a magnificent artist he was. I immediately went out and got a copy of it for myself, and I have delighted in this singer ever since. I have to point out something about the way that Ray Kemper sings Lieder. His first and foremost concern is with singing a viable musical line. Within the legato line that he spins out, he pinpoints words, he colors words, he inflects words, but always within the framework of a beautifully spun legato line. The end result of singing with such legato is not that the words lose their importance, but in fact that their supremacy is reaffirmed and reasserted in such a poignant and telling and colorful way. This is something that I treasure in the singing of Heinrich Reikemper. It's worth noting this because this would now, in this day and age, be considered a very old-fashioned way of singing Lieder. One would probably never encounter this on the world's concert stages today. I would like to suggest that we could use a little bit more line among today's singers and a little bit less choppiness one wishes that in the period when Ray Kemper was making these recordings, that Deutsche Grammophon had been enterprising enough to record him doing the complete cycles of Schönemöllerin and Winterreise. Even so, we do have a number of songs from both cycles. I think that the ones from Schönemüllerin are a little less successful. I don't know the reason for that. However, there's a beautiful recording he made, again with Manfred Gurlitt, of the 15th song of the Schönemüllerin cycle called Eifersucht und Stolz, Jealousy and Pride, where the miller tells the brook as it flows by the deceitful young maiden 
to tell her that the miller is on the banks of the brook, joyously playing reed flutes for little children and singing joyous songs, and not to tell her the truth that he is in mourning and nearing the edge of his reason. Before we move on to the Winterreise songs, I want to just take a moment to play a couple Hugo Wolf songs for you. These are two of the Mörike Lieder, and they couldn't be more contrasting. The first is a humorous song called Auftrag, or Commission, in which the poet frantically asks his cousin to please get as much information as she can about the young woman that the poet is in love with. He reminds his cousin that he may be half-poet, but the other half of him is a madman. This recording is from 1929 and is accompanied by Michael Raucheisen. The 
This next song is called Der Feuerreiter, the one who rides through the fire, the fire rider, and it depicts a gruesome tale. The fire rider is, in effect, a first responder when the mill bursts into flames. He rides into the conflagration, trying to save what can be saved. He's never again seen alive. The next day, the miller finds his skeleton, which dissolves in dust when he touches it. The song ends with a prayer for the soul of the man who tried to save the mill. This recording is again with Rauch Eisen and is one of Ray Kemper's last recordings, this one from 1929. <laughs>
let's return to Schubert and a different kind of horror story than we just heard in Der Feuerreiter. This is the song Der Doppelgänger, which is set to a text by Heinrich Heine. In it, the poet observes a man pacing back and forth in front of the house where the poet's beloved used to live. The poet observes the man wringing his hands, crying out in anguish, and the poet looks in horror at the face of the man and realizes that it is his own face that he sees. Not only is there the existential anguish of seeing his own tortured past reenacted, but there's also this feeling of the heartbreak of love continuing on a never-ending cycle. Schubert reinforces this feeling of inevitability by structuring the song as a passacaglia with a four-bar harmonic bass line which recurs over and over as the events unfold and the song reaches its inevitable conclusion. This recording is from 1928 with Manfred Gurlitt at the piano. Oh, God. 
Schubert's settings of the poems of Wilhelm Müller that comprise the 24 songs of Winterreise represent, I believe, his peak of an achievement as a composer. Heinrich Rehkemper made recordings of seven of the 24 songs from Winterreise, and they are among his most important and devastating recordings. I'm going to play three of the songs for you today. First, a portion of the opening song, Gute Nacht. The poet bids farewell to the town where he had been in love and where his former betrothed is about to marry another. With this song of leave-taking, he embarks on a journey into the winter wilderness. This recording's from 1928 with Manfred Gourlet. Oh, <laughs> 
The second song that we're going to hear from Winterreise is the perennial favorite, Der Lindenbaum. The poet encounters a tree, a linden tree, where he always used to find consolation as he passes through the town where he once lived on a stormy night and stops underneath the tree. The tree seems to call to him and offer him the same kind of respite that he used to find. I always raise this question with my listeners and with myself when I hear this song. What exactly is the tree offering him? Forgetfulness? A nostalgic revisiting of his past? Or is it calling out to him to hang himself from the branches and to gain release from his suffering? I'm not sure of the answer. What do you think? I'm so taken with the multitude of colors and inflections that Heinrich Reikemper uses here. Thank you. 
recordings of the Winterreise songs is a masterly performance. I strongly encourage you all to look into more of his recordings of Schubert and of other Lieder. I'm simply going to end this short section on Winterreise with the final song, Der Leiermann, where the poet, now driven past the point of sanity, encounters a hurdy-gurdy man wandering barefoot over the ice on the outskirts of the town, and the poet recognizes in this crazy personage, rejected by society, a kinsman, someone who can offer accompaniment to the poet's own songs. So in the end, is it companionship, or is it death, or is it both? Again, one has to make this decision for oneself what it is that's depicted here.
mag ihn hören, keiner sieht ihn an. Und die Hunde knurren um den alten Mann. Und er lässt es gehen, alles wie es had so much misery. So let me just give you another little sad bit of information regarding the life and career of Heinrich Reikemper. He had a horrible heart condition. It curtailed his singing career, which ended more or less in 1943 after the Munich Opera House was bombed. From 1940 to 1945, Reikemper taught at the Salzburger Mozarteum. He died of that heart condition that afflicted him in 1949 at the age of only 55. His recordings were made over a very short period of time for someone who had a career that lasted from 1919 through 1945. I have two further songs to offer you today. One is from the early end of his recording career in 1924. That is the Schumann song, Meine Rose. This is set to a text of Nikolaus Lenau. The poet addresses the rose, his delight, that is already wilting and turning pale from the hot beams of the sun. The poet describes reaching into a deep well to retrieve water to give to the rose. And he finds a parallel between the rose and his suffering soul. <laughs> Oh, 
I'm not doing a bonus episode this week, my dears, although I very easily could have done. But I'm saving up some of these wonderful baritones that we just sampled, and I hope to bring them to you in fuller reflection of their artistic accomplishment in episodes to come. I'm so honored that I get to share these singers and this music with you. But it's long past time to end the episode. So let me see you all off with our final Ray Kemper performance of a Schubert song. And this one depicts sheer bliss. Das Rosenband. It's set to a poem by Klopstock. Im Frühlingsschatten fand ich sie. Da band ich sie mit Rosenbändern. Sie fühlt es nicht und schlummerte. Ich sah sie an. Mein Leben hing mit diesem Blick an ihrem Leben. Ich fühlte es wohl und wusste es nicht. I found her in the spring shade and bound her up with rosy ribbons. She felt it not and continued to slumber. I looked upon her, and my life with that gaze hung onto her very life. I felt it, but I didn't know it. And then I awoke her from slumber with a wordless whisper, and she looked at me. And her life hung with this gaze on my life, 
and around us it became heaven. Dear friends, keep the song in your hearts. I'm Daniel Gundlach.